for those of you who, who don't know me, I'm, I'm Richard Webb, one of the pastors over in West Des Moines. We're actually for Hope Wide, and uh, my area is um, I lead the worship for the traditional service as well as I teach. So that's kind of my specialty, which is kind of fun because of what we're going to dig into. Um, let's begin with some prayer. Father, thank you indeed that we get to discover what you've got for us in your word and that even though it was written some 2,000 years ago and even further back, that it's still alive and still changes lives. So open our hearts, our minds, and, um, and our eyes to see you as we discover what you have for us. We pray in your name. Amen. Make sure I don't bump into anything there. We're going to back up a little bit and take a look at the first chapter of John. I'll also do a, a brief overview of John as well. And we've been in John now for a couple weeks. And the question before the house today is, is Jesus the one? But like I said before that, I want to back up and just talk about the gospel in general. First question is, when was the gospel of John written? And um, I believe it was written around 90 A.D., uh, there was some belief for a long time, especially uh, in the last couple hundred years, that it was written sometime around 300 or 400 A.D., and that way they could say it was all made up. But even skeptics began to look and said, nope, written around 90 A.D., which would make it about um, 60 years after Christ rose from the dead. Um, it also means that it was written around the time when people who would have seen Jesus would still have been alive. Not many, but some. Um, John was one of them. So he was... Um, he was quite old when he was putting this thing together. In fact, he was probably a prisoner on a prison island called Patmos. Speaking of that, so who wrote John? Kind of tip my hand there. Interestingly enough, if you look at all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't have titles. Those titles were put on much later. So there's no author listed. But the best guess, and this is why I think it's John, is the guy who's known as the unnamed disciple of the two who followed Jesus in John 1. Um, the other guy was Andrew. Let me just read you that scripture so you know what I'm talking about. This is from John 1, uh, verse 35, if you have your Bibles. The following day, John was standing again with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. And then later, one of them was identified as Andrew, and the other one is just not identified at all. If we keep following the unidentified disciple, his name changes to the one whom Jesus loves. And he never identifies who he is, but we're pretty well guessing it's John. John was probably the youngest of all the disciples, probably 16, 17, 18, 19 when he began following. He was the kid. And he probably was a titch squirrely from what we, we notice from what we're reading. And that leads us into why was this gospel written? And it was probably not written because John had a religious experience. It was written because John had a Jesus experience. John walked with this 33-year-old rabbi, who was 31 when John started following him. Not much, you know, he was big brother kind of thing. And um, got to see all kinds of amazing stuff. And he was the only one of the male disciples who was there when Jesus was being crucified. All the rest ran away. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved, and part of that we know is because Jesus basically looked at him and said, take care of my mom for me, will you? As he's dying, you don't have much left to say because you're dying and those words are precious, so you're very careful with what you say. And what Jesus said was he looked straight at this kid and he said, take care of my mother. 
That says something about the relationship they had. John was so impacted. This is what he wrote at the very end of his story of Jesus, what we call the gospel. John 20, verses 30 and 31. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in, these, in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life in the power of his name. See, again, I don't think John got that out of a religious experience. I think that's exactly what John experienced on the ground with Jesus. A new kind of life, even through Jesus' death, and especially through his resurrection. And he wants other people to know that as well. The Apostle Paul puts it very similarly when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the story of Jesus. For it is the power of God to salvation. And I used to think that was some kind of wild religious expression. Ooh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. What could that possibly mean? Until I realized Paul's just telling a story of when God knocked him on his behind when he was on the road to Damascus. And there was Jesus. And he experienced some power, landed him flat on the ground. And so these guys are writing out of their life experience. This is very, very important for us to know that in a lot of ways, Christianity is not a religion. It's a real-life set of events that happen that still impact all of us. And these guys are writing out of it. So now let's go back to the, the question before the house. Is Jesus the one? Let me set the stage for just what's going on. We're going we're gonna to take a look at, at the front end of the Gospel of John. What's going on historically? This is very, very important. We're, we're not going to do anything academic here. We're going to know just enough to help us dig in and figure out what's going on. Number one, things were intolerable. This is one of the nastiest periods of history. Things have been bad in our country here and there. People in Greece are not having a good time right now as their economy is crashing like the Titanic. But it's nothing compared to what was going on at the time of Jesus. There was a brutal Roman occupation that would make the Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe look like a picnic. They had no problem killing people, and every now and then when Jewish revolutionaries would kill off a Roman soldier, the Romans would return the favor and kill off an entire village. You kill one of ours, we'll kill a hundred of yours. And that's kind of how they ran stuff. They had a king who was a murderous tyrant named Herod. And he had no problem killing off his enemies. In fact, it says as he got old and he was terrified that he would lose his throne, he killed off his kids. Well, a few survived, and his sons, he divided the kingdom between three of them. They were no better. In fact, the Romans so much did not like them that they took the capital city for themselves and ran it directly by a guy who was not much better. His name was Pontius Pilate. The guy who was in, 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 jo in the job when, when Jesus was killed. And then the folks who were supposed to be helping people experience God's grace, the temple priests in downtown Jerusalem at the temple, they were as corrupt as the day is long. They were kind of like Chicago aldermen, you know. <laughs> ah, many of you know, yes. I remember when I lived in Chicago, it was, our, it was our city sport to send an alderman to jail every year. Who was it going to be this year? Then we started sending governors to jail. Oh, man, you got to love Chicago. That was the priesthood. And when the people went to, to give sacrifices at the temple, instead of experiencing God's grace, they experienced extortion and corruption because the priests got their cut, their take. 
And then there were the religious thought police who started out as a movement about God's grace. Funny how that works and turned into a bunch of legalists running around making sure everybody behaved and making life miserable for everyone. Yeah, it was not fun. And in the middle of this, people were getting sick and tired and they were looking for someone to rescue them. And so they began digging deep in the Old Testament. They looked in Isaiah. They looked in Jeremiah. They looked in Daniel. They even looked in some books written after the Old Testament. And they were looking for anything to see who, who was coming to rescue them. Some of them believed that God was going to raise up a prophet like Moses to come rescue them. And that's written in Deuteronomy. And then others believed that it would be Elijah who would come back. And that's in Malachi. And others believed that it would be God's chosen one. And the word for chosen one in Hebrew is Mashiach. Everybody say Mashiach. Mashiach. Mashiach which if you move that in English is Messiah. So they were thinking that still others believed, and you can see this in Daniel, that God himself was going to come and clean up the mess and set things right. He was going to rescue them just like he had rescued them from Egypt, and they were going to have a brand new exodus. And this time it wouldn't be out of Egypt, it would be out of, under the Romans, out of the brutal kings, and out of the corrupt priests and the thought police. And during this time, there were several people who thought they were the God's chosen one, and they were going to do it. Usually young would-be revolutionaries who claimed to be the Messiah, and usually the Romans took one look at them and just killed them. Strung them up on pieces of wood like terrorists. Or they just ignored them as frauds, one way or the other. And so the question was boiling around, who's the one? Are you the one? Nope, you just got killed. Are you the one? Nope, you're a fraud. Are you the one? Nope, you got killed too. Are you the one? And in the midst of all this misery, a prophet named John came, and he was proclaiming that God indeed was going to come. He was going to come soon, and everybody needed to get ready. Bible says that when John started preaching, huge crowds joined him. And it was no surprise that the word got down. He was up in the north, and word got downtown to downtown Jerusalem to the temple. And so a bunch of the religious authorities, some of the thought police... Some of the temple priests sent some folks to take a look-see and see what this guy was up to. There's this funny little dialogue they engage in, and these are the, the messengers sent from the, the priests. And they go up to John the, John the Baptist and they say, Who are you? John's answer is, Definitely not the Messiah. It's a strange way to start a conversation. So they said, So you're Elijah. You're the one that, that Malachi prophesied. Nope, wrong on that one. Well, then you must be the prophet like Moses. Wrong again. I'm not that one either. Try door number three. But John does one thing when they say, well, finally, who are you? And he says this, I am the voice crying out from the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And then he adds, someone's coming after me who's way more important than me and way more powerful than me. That's the one we need to get ready for. I'm just preparing the way. And the next day, as John was preaching, he saw his cousin. Pretty ordinary guy, probably about 30 years old. His name was Joshua. It's a real common name back then. We know him as Jesus. And he said to his cousin, he pointed out everybody, look, that's the Lamb of God who's going to come and take away the sins of the world. Now, that's kind of a bizarre thing to say about your cousin. Look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or in King James English, behold the Lamb of God who takest away, or actually, which takest away the sins of the world. You know, it's a very religious-sounding phrase, very impressive, having a clue what it means. So let's unpack. What does it mean? Because to the hearers, it meant a lot. It sounds to us like a religious phrase. And if you grew up Catholic or Lutheran Episcopalian, you sang it right before communion. What does it mean? What was John saying? 
So I want to break it down into four things. Number one, look. Number two, the Lamb of God. Number three, who takes away the sins. And number four, of the world. And we're going to walk through each one of them and unpack what might have John meant, what did his hearers hear, and what on earth does that mean for us. So let's start out with the word look. Look in Hebrew is an interesting one. It's idu. You see it there in, in Greek. See, that's all strange stuff. Um, and it literally means to look, to pay attention, or in King James, behold, which literally means to hold it with your eyes. Focus on it. So John, the first thing he says is you've got to take your attention off of whatever it's on, and you've got to put your attention on this dude, because this is a dude worth paying attention to. Now, let's talk about that because there are two challenges, I think, to looking, especially the kind of looking that John's talking about. One is distractions. American culture is built on distractions. Anybody been to the mall lately? Every store screams out, buy me, buy me, buy me, and you don't need a thing. I think the ultimate distraction is Christmas Day where we buy things we can't afford for people we don't like. <laughs> And then they do the same thing, and then we all go to the return counter on the 26th. It's one of the most stressful, stressful holidays we have is Christmas of all things. The good news day turns out to be bad news day for most of us. It reminds us of our unfinished business, of our regrets, of the difficult situation we're in life, all because of these crazy expectations that are heaped upon us that distract us from the baby in the manger. Or maybe some of us struggle with that distraction of just how life goes. Um, I live in West Des Moines, and it's very, very interesting to watch West Des Moineners. Here's what I've discovered about West Des Moineners. These are a unique species. They work 60 hours a week. They, on top of that, have daily fitness regimens. There's children's sports and, and music activities. There's weekly time for the family, if we can cram it in. There's time for church, daily time for God, maybe. Social life, are you kidding? Time alone, what are you joking? Sleep, not really. If you go to Utah, the state symbol is a beehive. And the whole point is that if a, a good Utah is a busy little bee. The problem with busyness is it distracts you from truth. It distracts you from reality because at 2 in the morning when your brain finally calms down, it starts dealing with what you need to. And it ain't fun. So in order to avoid that, we hop out of bed and get right on the computer as fast as we can. Or watch ESPN. Or something else not so cool. And John, in the midst of all that busyness, whether it's Christmas or the West Des Moines lifestyle, or the stores in the mall screaming, buy me, says, look, there's something worth looking at, and it's not that. Sometimes the issue isn't distraction. Sometimes it's because we're looking at all the wrong things. Maybe we're into the old game of those who accumulate the most stuff before they die win. There's a little problem with that. It's a little phrase. You can't take it with you. Yeah, it's really tough to bury the beamer in the coffin. You go out like you came in with nothing. And yet we often will stick our self-worth on our stuff. Or maybe our distractions are not stuff, but self-medication. Goodness, every one of us picks, enough pain, up, picks up enough pain in life from childhood, from being a young adult and maybe making some decisions we shouldn't have, from broken relationships where we don't even know what a successful relationship looks like. 
And so we begin to medicate that stuff. We look for it in all the wrong places for relief. Maybe it's the internet. Maybe it's the bottle. Maybe it's the pills. Maybe it's TV. Maybe it's food. And these all become little, little G-gods. Ways out that really aren't ways out. They're just ways deeper into the hole. One way or another, John says in the midst of that, I've got the right place for you to look. I've got something for you to focus your attention on that will not take you deeper into your hole, that will not distract you from the truth, and ironically is what you've been looking for all along, even if you don't know it. And that leads us to the second phrase, Lamb of God. Look, the Lamb of God. Now, this phrase is a very, very big deal. And I've got to start out actually by telling the story of an ancient business contract there, or, or a military treaty, um, what they called a covenant back then. And there's a story of, of, of four big kings in the Middle East who kind of ran the whole business. And, and, and one king rebelled, and, and, and he uh, was not one of the big kings, and he got himself into a heap of trouble. Well, he lost the war, so there's, there's this big meeting where they're going to have a treaty. And the way they had a treaty is they took a lamb and they cut it in pieces, got the local butcher there, you know. And so they set them aside, and then they made the loser, the little king, walk through them. And as he did this, remember these are a bunch of pagans, he's praying to the pagan gods, may this happen to me, may I be cut up like this if for some reason I break this peace treaty. They also did the same thing with business contracts, is, is the smaller company had to walk between the animals and say, may our company be chewed up like this if we break the contract. And they also did that religiously. Well, there is a story of a time when God has made some promises to Abraham and Sarah, and God says, we're going to make a contract. And so he says, cut up some animals, set them side by side, and then strange thing happens. Abraham falls asleep, and when he wakes up, he sees a smoking pot and a flaming torch spinning right between all those pieces of cut-up animals. And somehow he senses that's God himself. But that's really weird. You see, in a contract like that, Abraham should be doing that because clearly God ain't the weaker party, right? If it was a business contract, he's the big corporation, you know? You know, he's, he, he's Microsoft swallowing up some dinky little vendor. But God says, may this happen to me. If for some reason my promises to you, Abraham, don't happen. Almighty God, creator of the universe, is saying, may I be caught up like these animals if my promises don't happen. Later on, famous story of when God invites Abraham to sacrifice his only son, who's supposed to be a father of a great nation. So all of a sudden, even the very invitation of God to invite Abraham to sacrifice his son is going to like mess with God's promises because they're through Isaac, supposed to be a great nation. Abraham, for some bizarre reason, decides to go through it. Now, this isn't weird back then. It's really sad, but it's not weird because back then all the pagan gods asked the parents to sacrifice their children sooner or later, usually the firstborn. But when they get ready for Abraham to do the deed, God says, stop, and provides for him a ram. The generic term for that is a sheep. Later on, when God's people were in trouble and it looks like God wasn't going to come through, he raised up Moses and he delivered the people of God out of Egypt. And part of that going away is everybody was to take a lamb and cut it up. Sounding familiar? 
another contract. And they put the blood over the doorpost as a symbol of God's promise that he would spare them from the plagues and that he would get them out of there and they would not die. A lamb began to be the symbol for God's people of God's promises. And so when they built the temple, they would sacrifice lambs not to keep God happy with them, but as a reminder of God's promise to them that he would do right by them, that he would come through, and that they could rely on him. And so here comes John. Things are tough. They're wondering, is God going to keep his promises? We got the Romans. We got these crazy kings. We got these corrupt priests. It's feeling like a bad day in Chicago. When's God going to come through? And John says, behold, there is the Lamb of God. This is God coming to make good on his promises that he's going to set us free. God's going to make good because he's good for it and he's going to deliver the goods. And then it leads us to the next thing. What's he going to set us free from? Who takes away the sins. Now there's a nice religious phrase. The Lord forgives your sins. Jesus saves. What, green stamps? You know. <laughs> You have to be old enough to get that one. Um, but, you know, we, we see that as a nice religious phrase. Jesus is going to save you from your sins. Well, then we start thinking, well, it's the thing I did. I remember as a kid, that phrase meant, well, when I was mean to my mom and dad. Yeah, when I didn't tell the truth to my teacher, when I didn't do my homework. Jesus is saving me from all that. Yes, but that's like that much of it. One of the things the prophets said when Israel was in exile in a foreign land, they, they said that God's one day going to forgive you all the sins that got you in this mess. He's going to make it right for you. And the sign that he forgives your sins will be that he leads you out of exile and brings you back home. And so the phrase forgiveness of sins began used as a shorthand for when God was going to rescue his people. When God was going to rescue his people. And so people would say, when's God going to forgive our sins? And they would, what they meant by that is, when is God going to deliver us from the Romans? When's God going to deliver us from these corrupt priests? When's God going to deliver us from the, from, from the grumpy old religion thought pre, police or whatever they are? When's God going to deliver us? So here's the Lamb of God, God himself, who takes away the sins. He is going to set us free. But here's the problem here. God's people were under captivity for, for so long, first with the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Assyrians, and now the Romans, that they had forgotten what God's freedom looked like. And all they thought it meant is, kill off all these people. Let us be in charge. In fact, there were all sorts of things. People in the first century thought that when God came back, he would kill the Romans. He would wipe out their empire. He would kill off the priests and the kings. He would restore all things, and the whole world would be Israel's slaves. Another version has it, the whole world's just destroyed and they're the only ones left. But the whole point is when God comes back, there's going to be payback to everybody who did us wrong. And we're going to be in charge and you're done. And there was so much anger and bitterness that had been loaded into the promise of God that it distorted it and turned it upside down. You see, Israel was raised up by God not to be in charge, not for privilege, not for entitlement, but to be God's message of love to the whole world because the prophets talk about the fact that one day the world would be flooded with the knowledge and love of God and justice would roll like a river. And all the world would be Israel. There's even wild prophecies that talk about how God is ultimately going to deal with Egypt and Babylon. How? By destruction? No, by bringing them in. Egypt, my priests, 
Babylon, my people, the prophet Isaiah says. Nobody wanted to read that. It was too offensive. Our enemies? Our priests? Are you kidding? No way. That's the house of death. It'll never be the house of grace. And God said, I can redeem anything. Do you know that God can redeem anything? God can redeem your lives. He can put them back together. He can redeem your circumstances. He can put them back together. There is no Egypt too big that God cannot redeem. There is no exile so far that God cannot bring you back home. But it's not the home where we're on top getting revenge on our enemies. Because I wonder if we're much different than Israel sometimes. We're kind of like the client who goes to the therapist and says, make me better, but don't change a thing. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of therapists heard that one. It's kind of like we want our sins forgiven and, and we want this freedom thing. We, we want it on our own terms where we, we don't change. The problem is forgiveness means change. Because half the time, the prison we're locked up in is not our circumstance, but it's ourselves. In AA, there, there's a thing they call stinking thinking, and, and one of the phrases that comes out of stinking thinking is if only things would change, then I'd stop drinking. If only my boss wouldn't be so mean, I'd stop drinking. If only my wife or husband would be nicer to me, I'd stop drinking. And what you discover is everything else has to change for me to stop drinking, which means, I'll tell you, something does need to change. It's here. Yep, exactly. That's why they call it stinking thinking, because it stinks. <laughs> Often, we're our own tyrant. And often, we are the ones we need to be freed from our own junk. But Israel didn't see that. What is the true freedom that God wants for us? It's freedom to live in his world, his life. And that leads us then to the next one. Behold, or look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, what, of the world. This is so huge. John later puts this in John 3, 16. For God so loved the what? The world. Exactly. Not for God so loved Lutherans, or God so loved Des Moines, or God so loved just Israel, or just the people he approves us. For God so loved the world. The Apostle Paul put it this way. I, I just love this. He says, you know, someone might die for a, a good person and maybe even more so for a great person. And then he says, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, I don't know what you've been through and, and, and I don't know what you're walking through, but God does and you can't hide it from him. But you know his response is? Not condemnation. He'll tell the truth. But he says, guess what? I took care of it. When I died, I heaped all that junk on my shoulders and took it down with me to the grave and left it there so that it would not be the last word of your life. I want to give you freedom. And he said, I want to do this for the whole world. You see, and this is the important thing that really rubbed Israel the wrong way in the first century and tends to rub us the wrong way in the 21st century is that God's salvation of each one of us, God's freedom, taking away our sins, is not, out, is not about us. It's about the next person God wants to love on. God told Abraham and Sarah, I want to make you a great nation, talking about Israel, and I want to bless you. But he said this then. He said, and I want to bless others through you so that all the nations would be blessed by you. You see, things were messed up, and God's solution to putting the planet back together was Israel. Israel. 
God wants to use his people to rescue the planet, to put it back together one life at a time. God so loved the world that he loved you to call you into his freedom so that through you, others might know his love. And that's the part that Israel had a real problem with because they were looking for an Israel improvement project. And often we're looking for a self-improvement project where our faith is all about making us better, taking away our anxiety, taking away our fear. God wants to do all of that, but that's about 2% of the project. And often we rob ourselves of the amazing things God wants to do through us, the amazing adventure God wants to take us on because we're too busy getting better. You know what the problem with getting better is? You don't get better by trying to get better. That's all focusing on yourself, and that's where the problem starts. God wants you to know that he's got you covered so much you don't have to take care of yourself that way anymore. I still remember I was at a big rally where a very well-intended preacher had us all shouting out, no one's going to look out for us but us. And I thought, well, that's well-meaning, but it's not true because I know someone is looking out for me. And God wants us to know that so deeply in our bones that we can stop focusing on ourselves and begin to do what God has called us to do, which is to be a channel for his love to everyone around us so that we're no longer a self-improvement project, that we're part of God's project. And what is God's project? God's project is a rescue-the-world project. God's project is not about making religious people. God's project is about making heaven crowded. So how do we join him? How do we join him? Well, if we keep reading in John chapter 1, verse 35, this is what we discover. Actually, let's kick it to about uh, John 37. John ch chapter 1, verse 37. John has just said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then when John's two disciples heard this, verse 37, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following. He said, what do you want? It's an interesting one. When we follow Jesus, do we know what we want? Here's the cool thing. Most of us don't, and Jesus don't care. He'll take us any way coming. And they ask the dumbest thing. They say, Rabbi, where's your house? Huh? Well, he knows they're just nervous and saying any old silly thing. So he says this, come and see. Come and see. And I think that's his invitation for us today. Come and see. Whatever your stuff is, Wherever your life circumstance is, whatever's going on with you, Jesus invites you to come and see. Maybe you don't even know if you believe in him. Maybe you're not sure you even understand who he is or what he offers. He says, that's okay. We'll go on a journey and I'll help you discover it. You see, the disciples didn't have a clue about who Jesus was when they first followed him. They just thought he was some smart guy. Maybe another revolutionary that they were going to try out. They didn't realize that it was God come down to put him back together and rescue the planet. It takes a while for them to figure that out. And it takes a while for us to figure out who Jesus is too. But just come and see. Come and see. At the very end of the Bible, John writes a book to seven churches. This is when he's in prison. And he has a vision of Jesus knocking on the door of Christians' lives. And this is what Jesus says. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice, open the door. I will come in and we will share a meal as friends. Open the door. Open the door. Let him in. And I guarantee you, your life is going to be way different, way beyond your wildest dreams 
He will put you back together and then he will flow through you to others and he will put others back together through you. How about that? You will begin to be the way God rescues other people's lives. Now that's a pretty neat destiny, don't you think? That's a pretty cool adventure. Let's rise and pray.